Welcome to the Mortise and Tenon Magazine podcast, where we're celebrating historic furniture making. This is episode number 57. I'm Mike Uptograph. And I'm Joshua Klein. And again, we're doing right now something special. We're doing a mini-series where we're going through David Pye's The Nature and Art of Workmanship. Uh, we're going chapter by chapter. Uh, this episode is focused on chapter six, which is entitled The Natural Order Reflecting Reflected in the Work of Man. Yeah, so this is where Pi dives into kind of uh, connecting some of the things he's been thinking about, some of the, the fussy uh, aesthetic judgments and thinking about uh, particular definitions of words, and he's moving into, okay, so let's just consider nature. I mean, this is a classic philosophical move, of course, to be talking about the nature of a thing and then to talk about uh, the natural world and say, okay, so how does this re- how is this reflected in the natural world around us? Uh, because we are created beings, when we look around at the broader creation, we can start to see, okay, well, there's a there's a pattern here. There's something uh, we fit in here, and so therefore it makes sense to look at the broader natural world to find some commonality. So that's what he's doing in this chapter. <clears throat> yeah. So Pi just got done in the last chapter about talking about um, the designer's power to communicate his intentions, right? So you have this design and how it's carried out, you know, by by the artisan or the craftsperson or whatever is how uh, rigidly they stick to the design. And so he starts here looking at nature. He says. In every natural organism, we see a dichotomy between idiosyncrasy and conformity to the pattern of the species. So what he means by that, he, he unpacks here. He says there are no two leaves of the same tree that are exactly alike, right? And then he, he gives the example of human faces. They're all diverse within uh, sort the of a, species. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But there's a general trend to which they conform. He says there are no cyclopses, right? And by that, right. you know, that's having an eye in the middle of your forehead. Only one eye. Only one eye. Because yeah. there's, you know, your skeletal structure and things like that are uh, very basically over all humankind, pretty indistinguishable. It's yeah, very so, close to that. Design. I mean, he's talking about there's this um, this uh, dichotomy between uh, individuality and the pattern of right. characteristics. So it's the individual and the pattern, the individual and the pattern. That's what he's setting up, that both of those things are present. So you can identify something as a maple tree. Yeah. But of course, there is no maple tree that is identical to another maple tree. They're mm-hmm. all different. And so he's saying, this is just the way the world is. This is the way yeah. everything is. And so this is setting up. So therefore, when we make things, we can reflect that. Yeah. And so he, he makes a statement, you know, no oak looks like an ash. Uh, within oaks, there is variety though, right? And that's how you tell one oak from another is the difference in the the variety of the leaves and the bark and the twigs and things like that. So he's just uh, looking to the natural world to draw these kind of distinctions out a little bit. Yeah, he says, we recognize the underlying idea, i.e. the oakness of an oak. We identify the pattern of the species um, and we see that, um, but then we identify also that there's an, there's, this individual expression, this, and that what he talks about, the free workmanship um, is reflecting uh, the natural order when we work. Yeah. When we make something, as the chapter is called, the natural order reflected in the work of man. This free workmanship provides that uh, idiosyncratic individual characteristic that makes every piece different from the next, even though it's still a table. 
Yeah. Even though it's still a chair, even yeah. though, so. It, I Again, I just find it interesting, and we'll get into this in a later chapter, but the uh, Pi and Ruskin are really tracking along the same lines here. Ruskin was all about having this freedom. He yeah. said, basically, if you don't have it, if you don't have, you know, he, he uh, Ruskin loved the gargoyles on those uh, Gothic cathedrals. Mm -hmm. Because if you look close at him, there's so much character and so much crazy whimsy in these things. So imagine your pattern is, I want, you know, to carve a downspout for the cathedral, a, a guy with his mouth open, right? So that's your pattern. So you can carve your if, friend if, looking If you don't ridiculous. know, yeah, I mean, if you don't know, the gargoyles on cathedrals are downspouts. Yeah. That's what they are. They spit water off the roof. So therefore, that's why all these creatures are like hanging over with their mouths open because water pours out of their mouths. Yeah. And so it makes perfect sense that you would put your buddy's face on yeah, that thing. Yeah, and that's what was done. You look at some of these, you know, from these 12th century cathedrals, the gargoyles are uh, someone else's face that they carved a caricature of. So if they're if, hilarious, yeah, some of them should, are super comical. Oh man, yeah. Look up gargoyles Look if you up haven't seen gothic that. gargoyles oh, and man. just search through some images. It's pretty wild. But anyway, Ruskin was all about giving that sort of freedom to the artisan, saying if you don't have that kind of creative freedom, even within the form that you're doing, you know, you, you're making a gargoyle, but you have the freedom to be creative. He he basically says you're a slave, and. I think Pi might say something similar, though not as strongly in that argument. So I, I really feel like they track together in this. Yeah, I almost, I always feel like, I wonder if Pi uh, is so critical of Ruskin because he's uncomfortable with how close his vision actually is. It could be. He's like, I, that seems kind of too romantic. And that's yeah. not what I'm saying. But then the stuff kind of slips out. You're like, but that's yeah. really, really close. Yeah. Or at least sympathetic to uh, Ruskin's concerns. Yeah. So um, Pi here says, he's talking about in nature how we see these varying degrees of disparity. He says to Plato, uh, you know, Plato might have thought it would have been better if trees were perfect cylinders and everything was a perfect ideal form, right? Maybe. <laughs> I don't know. That would be kind of a strange world, like a, a, one of those George blocky, Jetson sort of world or something. Yeah, like, like one of those early video games or something, right? Like Pong, where everything, like even a round ball is not a perfect sphere. It's like this collection of cubes and squares uh, it'd be very odd but everything is like a perfect form right um plato might have liked that idea but i don't think anyone else would um but he says uh plato may have seen that things would be better if there were no disparities that's the uh, no such disparities that's the disparity between idea and achievement um so he says we have been uh it's been extremely recently that we have been removed from our natural surroundings, from our environment, right? He makes this case that uh, there, have been for, there have been men for many generations, thousands of generations, and only in the last couple hundred or less have we started to cut ourselves off from our natural environment. Right, and so he's talking about this surrounding. You, when you, you, when um, human beings have been surrounded by you know, hewn timbers and hand-worked things, you can't just flip that switch off and all of a sudden place them into a sterile, totally perfectly machined flat environment and expect them to feel comfortable, right? I mean, that's just not the way it's going to work. And so he said, it's been relatively recent that we are even exposed to such regularity. And therefore, uh, for us, this feels really strange. Yep. There's a reason that this doesn't feel homey but that it feels like a doctor's office uh, because it is just, it's too new. It doesn't, 
it's not uh, it's not in alignment with who we are. Yeah, he says, for age after age, the evidence of man's work showed insignificantly on the huge background of unmodified nature. So he's making a case that up until very recently, uh, you might say very, very recently, our our impact our our impact here on this planet was slight. We used, I mean, I'll build on his argument a little. We used natural materials that returned to the earth within a generation or two. Some things were preserved for longer, um, but for the most part, the materials we used, the methods we used, and the things we built were small and faded away quickly. Mm-hmm. And the, there's a limit to how much our our uh, fingerprints could really be felt. You know, that when you have a shovel, there's only so much you can do with a shovel. But when you have industrial equipment that are mining and taking mountaintops yeah. off, I mean, you, your impact is going to be a lot greater, of course. And so he's talking about the impact that humanity has made on the, the earth really has been relatively small mm-hmm. in comparison to, um, you know, the, the huge background, he just, he says, of unmodified nature. Nature yeah. felt big and oppressive. Mm-hmm. And so it made sense for a person to say, I really want to have some sense of so, some kind of control, some regulation to yeah. contrast this raw, wild nature that I'm just surrounded by. So that's what he's setting up. Uh, that's not at the same situation in 1968 when mm-hmm. he's writing that book and clearly not the same situation today. Yeah, I mean, if you look back through history, there are, of course, exceptions to every every statement that that Pi is making here. When you say, "Well, for the most part, we left everything pretty unmodified," well, there are, of course, like if you think about Seven Wonders of the Ancient World or some of the great cities of that time. Okay, that was the exception rather than the norm. Today, it is the norm rather than the exception. We've modified everything. Yeah. You know, it's hard to go someplace where you can look around and not see a modified landscape or a um, a precisely regulated landscape, something whose rough-hewn surface, you could say, or natural surface, the trees and the forest, has not been modified and smoothed out and made accessible and um, sterilized in some sense. Yeah, so he talks about this this development from civilization that brings about specialization, mm-hmm. this um, this uh, focused division of labor to uh, to w- focus on precision and regularity. Um, so he says, precision and regularity symbolize mastery. Mm-hmm. And so there's this progression, this connection between civilization and specialization, precision, yeah. which symbolizes mastery. Now, mastery is, I don't think, an irrelevant word because we're talking about, you know, a lot of times people will, will refer to mastery over nature, mm-hmm. having like having dominion or domination over nature. And so he's saying that the symbol of humanity being able to get a grasp of nature and say, I, you know, I have some control here in my surroundings, the symbol of that will be then regularity right. through specialization. Yeah, so to unpack that a little, we're talking about uh, craftsmanship. We're talking about objects made with a high degree of precision by hand, and those were seen as sort of the height of mastery. Right. A precisely made object is very different than the, the rough and tumble chaos you see in the, the w- world around you if you are living hundreds of years ago. So that precisely made object, he, he even says it, it's almost like, like worshipful. He says, um, 
uh, I'll start back here. Um, all the things in common use for everyday purposes were fairly free or rough workmanship, and anything precise and regular must have been a marvel, amazing, and worshipful. Uh, it reminds me of this example that's always stuck in my head for some reason from a C.S. Lewis book, um, That Hideous Strength, where uh, the magician Merlin is brought back to life after, you know, 1,500 years or whatever, and he's eating dinner in these people's house, and he comments that the food is tasteless, but the plates are so pristine and smooth. Like, he's complaining <laughs> about the food, but saying, how do you get such nice plates? These are amazing. Like, the yeah. king doesn't eat off plates like this. Yeah. And it's really this funny image, like, what a person from, you know, thousands of years in the past would observe is, wow, how perfect your that can of soup. Your food is lame. Yeah, but your food is tasteless. <laughs> yeah, the plate is amazing. <laughs> and uh, that, that has just stuck with me. And Pi, um, Pi comments on things like that too. He, he brings some examples up later in this chapter of things that are so precise, but we take for granted, such as a can of soup. Yeah, right. so he describes this as a reverence for precision. Mm -hmm. That historically, people in this circumstance had a reverence for precision. And he says there are basically two reasons that was the case, um, why, this, why there was such a thing as a reverence for precision. And the first one is, I think you could basically just summarize it as conspicuous consumption. Mm. If you're a person who can afford a really, really nice dinner plate, mm -hmm. <laughs> one that's really uh, well executed or you know, a sideboard with lots of inlay or whatever, what you're saying is, I'm super wealthy. Right. I'm of the upper echelon. I really can afford such regularity and precision. So that's one reason that people could say, oh, wow, look how precise that is. You have that in your dining yeah. room? I can't believe that. Yeah, it's it's a status symbol. We still yeah. have those today, of course. It's kind of uh, probably part of human nature to desire those status symbols. Um, so then he says there's a second reason. He thinks this is a deeper reason. He says it's the opposition of art to nature. Uh, he says, the natural world can seem beautiful and friendly only when you are stronger than it and no longer compelled with incessant labor to wring your livelihood out of it. And I think that's an interesting observation. Like our perception of nature is very uh, culturally dictated. Mm -hmm. um, the idea that people look, like you go as a tourist to Yellowstone National Park and you're like, oh, the cute bears. Let's go up and get a nice picture by the cute bears. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> that is that is just brainless behavior based on a complete uh, lack of knowledge, right? You have been so divorced from your environment, you don't see that bear as looking at you going, boy, he looks tasty, mm -hmm. right? You're divorced from that knowledge. So, but yeah. I, and I think the, all, the other thing about this is just the um, pervasive nature of this, uh, of nature, I guess, mm -hmm. that you're sick of nature, when you're in this situation, he describes the sailor. So actually you could say, you know, who would love to go out sailing? Mm. Go out on a beautiful day, uh, you know, first week of August in uh, in Maine, you know, get on a schooner yep, and go for a time. sail. Yep. It's like, oh, gorgeous. People like, you know, uh, wait for that to be able to come to Maine to do that, right? Well, how about the sailor at the end of his watch, who's been out on the sea, you know, months on end, he says at yeah. the end of his watch, he's going down below. He's like, right. I've had enough water. Yeah. Thank I've you very enough. much. I want to see no more the wind. inside of the hall. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, I'll be ready again tomorrow. Yep. And so he's he's highlighting that that distinction, I think, that um, that when you are surrounded with wildness, 
then you want something civilized. When you're surrounded with sterility of modernity, then you want to go out and go hiking. Exactly. That's just a basic observation. Yeah. I mean, Pai is describing a pendulum here. He's saying back then everything was rough and rough hewn and dirt colored, right? I mean, there's, there are again, exceptions to that, but for the most part, and he's saying, so what was desired was, were the things that were beautiful, brightly colored, painted, shaped with a degree of precision. Today, the pendulum has swung and most of us are living in a built environment that is wholly artificial. It's lit 24 hours, everything's glass and concrete and paved and perfect. And machine-made, which, machine is, the, made, which yeah. is what's relevant here about free yeah. workmanship or workmanship of certainty, that this is possible through not high, high levels of hand skill. Mm. It's possible through mechanization. Right. So, so everything is mechanized. Exactly. Everything is regular. So now our desire, it's like we're seeking a middle ground right. always. We want to swing back now to the more natural. We want to go out and go hiking and leave the city behind. And then in furniture, right? Since most furniture is now produced in factories and is very regular and regulated, uh, that's why there's a desire now for more people to get into handmade furniture. Right. And they like furniture that is made to look like it's made by hand. Yeah. You know, just as antiques were, you find different textures, you find different a variety of, of surfaces, um, you find a diversity there, which um, getting ahead of ourselves, but that is the next chapter. Yeah. That, it's a natural argument he's making here. Right. And I think the thing to remember about this, he was talking about art in nature. I think another word you could put there that would be appropriate would be culture in nature. Hmm. And so no matter what time period a person is living in, we're always going to want to have a foot in both of those, culture and nature. So if we're surrounded in nature, we're going to want to, you know, cultivate the aesthetic, the uh, artistic uh, environment around us. So we're going to be creating things to be more and more regular. If we're completely surrounded by culture and uh, everything that can be mechanized, then we're just wanting more nature. It's just a basic thing that he's setting up. So I always think about it in terms of culture and nature and that we always, as a human being, we always need both of those things. So the question is always just to think about how much of either am I exposed to And what's good for me? Yeah. What's what's the medicine? Do I need yep. to get out hiking more, or do I need more regularity, more um, you know yep. mechanical environment mm-hmm. in my life? Yeah. So he brings in this example. He talks about um, it's really very difficult indeed for us to realize what precision and regularity must have meant and how moving they must have been. So then he brings uh, a few trivial products in. He says from a money bound society in the throwaway ballpoint pen and the tomato can. So I have a ballpoint pen right here. And uh, you know, I could not make one of these. I am incapable of making this pen. Yeah, and you know, I have another one that's identical to that mm. pen. It looks just, yeah, you, you could sit the two of them down and shuffle them around. You wouldn't yep. know one from the other. Yep. So it is precise. Uh, it is made with, I mean, it's perfect. It is one of Plato's, uh, if you were to idealize a pen, this would be it. Mm-hmm. It's a perfect cylinder, a perfect taper at the end. It's got a little clip for, you know, sticking in my shirt pocket if I want to. Um, but it's a throwaway object. Yeah, when, when the ink runs out in that pen, are you going to wince when you chuck it in the yeah, trash can? I should can. put it in a museum, really, because it's so amazing. <laughs> it's the but pinnacle of culture. The problem is there are 10 million <laughs> of these made every day, right? So... 
the scarcity is no longer there because of what mass production can do. It can yeah. make a whole lot of these. And so the specialty of its perfection is no longer there. Yeah. So he says, okay, in our context where we are today, uh, he says, we, on the other hand, would do better to make things occasionally so that they reflect our community with the natural order instead of emphasizing our separation from it. Mm. So uh, we want to reflect our community with nature, not our separation from it. Yeah. That's what we need to be emphasizing for us. Yeah. He says, so their diversity would stave off the monotony, which comes of too much regularity and precision, right? Too, too many ballpoint pens, too many of these... Um, uh, little 68 cent per pen, you know, however much they are. If you have too much of that, it just becomes monotonous. It becomes a drain on you mentally. And I will point out, I think it's important to emphasize, it's not because that pen is shoddy yeah, or won't last long. It's not a quality concern. Right. It's a monotony concern. So you remember, Mike, remember when I started, um, I, so I do pour over coffees because yes. I'm snooty, yep. right? I knew you were a coffee guy. Well, the first time I went into Joshua's house and he said, you want a cup of coffee? And I said, yeah. And he pulls out a digital scale and a little cup and a pour over thing. And he starts weighing things. I'm like, wow, this guy, he knows what he's talking about. He meant a cup of coffee. He meant something real there. So here's the thing. So I used to, when I do these pour over coffees, uh, I would weigh the grounds and weigh the water. So mm-hmm. it's by weight. So you'd have a much the more regular, predictable cup. Yeah. And so that's valuable if you're approaching it scientifically. You can say, okay, I'm going to test these beans in this roast. And then if you want to change it, yeah. you just you can scientifically control how much water. If you do it kind of by eye, it's always going to be different, right? right? So what ended up happening is I was buying from my friend who's an excellent roaster. Yeah. I was buying amazing beans really, really amazing beans. And every day I would weigh the beans and weigh the water. It's just exactly the same every single morning. <laughs> right. And afternoon and evening. Which is to say, excellent, but exactly the same yeah. as it was the previous and day. And so I got rid of that scale mm-hmm. because I realized, you know what, I'm actually, I want to appreciate the uniqueness of each cup. Right. And it, I now can, you know, see by eye how much, and every cup is a little bit different. It's all great, but yep. they're all a little different. And so I think that's a one illustration of so many different ways we can approach making that way, that we get out our digital scale yeah. to create something. And it's just everything is churned out exactly the same. It may be high quality, but it's the same quality, yeah. the same, same, same. And that is what Pi is concerned about here. Yeah. He says, high regulation used to be, to some extent, a mark of honor or respect, Anything fit for a king must unquestionably be of highly regulated workmanship. So he he mentions here in this paragraph something I had to look up because I'm not English. He mentions the wool sack. He says, the wool sack may be stuffed with wool, but it does not look so much of a sack as other sacks do. So for those of you who are not British, uh, the wool sack- That just went way over a lot of people's heads. Exactly. What is the wool sack? So the wool sack, back in the, the 14th century, I forget if it was King Edward- uh, he decreed that basically the 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 Lord Speaker in the House of Lords had to sit on a sack full of wool as he gave his edicts and things like as that. As one does. As one does, yeah. You have to sit on... So it's basically the fanciest beanbag chair you can imagine, all right? And so in 1938, they remade this thing and stuffed it with wool from all over the British Isles. So the Lord Speaker with his, his pomp and his wig and his robes sits on the wool sack. And he's saying... 
So that was a sack like any other sack. It was just a sack for wool, but it was the nicest one imaginable because it was made for royalty. So that's what he's saying. Like precision affected every every object and the more precise was for those who are, were of greater importance or wealth. So someone who had that wealth, they showed it by having the most perfect objects, you could say. Yeah, and so he's talking about, he says, the contrasting qualities of workmanship, precision and approximation, regulation and freedom. These are words he's been talking about. How precise is it or approximate? How regular is it? How much freedom is in the work? That this kind of, these contrasting qualities um, are neither good nor bad in themselves. And that's what's really important. Again, we're not talking about quality. We're talking about monotony. Mm -hmm. And so earlier on, he said, what was their meat will soon be our poison. Right. Meaning what was meat, good food for them was regularity and precision. For us, that's poison. We have way too much of it. Yeah. Right. So, so much of poison is there are, you know, some poisons are medicines at different uh, amounts, right? So if you get too much of something that is good, it's poisoning to you. And that's what I think what Pi is talking about. Regulation's good until you OD on it. Yeah. Yeah. My, my kids like to talk about, you know, the dangers of, uh, what is it? Dihydrogen monoxide, you know, how it's the deadliest liquid known to man and it doesn't take much to kill you and how many people die from exposure to it every year. And we should pass some laws against this. Yeah. We should ban it because it's deadly. (laughs) Uh, of course, you know, if you're not catching the joke, it's water, right? So too much can be a bad thing. Um, so then he, he goes back and he's talking about, um, free workmanship. Okay. So again, this whole chapter is to make a case for us in this day and age to embrace free workmanship and the value of that, the value that it brings to our built environment, um, the value of avoiding monotony and adding beauty. So, but he does have a, a little disclaimer here. He says, the use of free workmanship no more guarantees aesthetic quality than does the use of oil paint, right? You're not a master just because you're using the same medium. Right. Uh, in fact, uh, he says, you know, you can really make a train wreck of something with three free workmanship. So that is where the the method does not necessarily get the ends that you're looking for. And I think this is really important. Actually, I think this this sentence on its own is kind of weird. I don't really know what he's trying. I, mean, I know what he's trying to say, but I don't think it's exact because he says the use of free workmanship no more guarantees aesthetic quality than does the use of oil paint. Mm-hmm. So free workmanship, if you're thinking about contrasting others, like let's just say furniture making to painting, right? I, I would have wrote, written that sentence saying the use of free workmanship, the use of a chisel yeah. is no more guarantees like success yeah. than using a brush right. to paint, right? So it's not the medium, it's the free workmanship. So yeah. if you handed me a paintbrush, I will not paint a painting that is skillfully done, right? I mean, that's just, I don't have this skill. So I do think this is, at least this is what Pi would say his his diff, major difference is with Ruskin. And again, we'll get there when he gets to this chapter. But he says that there's sort of this, um, this fetish of roughness or this mm. fetish of hand work in Morris and Ruskin, yeah. that for them, it is the medium. I think right. that's what Pi would say. Like so, if you handed yeah, someone who's okay. not a painter a paintbrush and said, "Paint me a portrait," yeah, 
I think he would say, yeah, Ruskin would be all over it no matter what it looked like just because it was done just by hand. Just because it's done by hand. Well, what yeah. Pi cares about is the skill. Yeah. And so if if you had, if you, you know, printed out a portrait on your com- in your printer on your computer, uh, Pi would not care about that because he'd say, well, that didn't take you any skill. Mm-hmm. But if you painted a, a, a highly accurate portrait, he would say, wow, that's amazing. Yeah. And I think that's what's really important is that this isn't just being obsessed with hand for hand's sake. Yeah. But it's being about obsessed with hand skill. Yeah. Being able to successfully wield that tool. And I think that is what Pi is uh, really helpful in emphasizing. That doesn't seem to be Ruskin's concern as much because he has social concerns. He's yes. against slavery. Right. So he's saying yeah. we want to give them freedom to express themselves even if it looks bad. Yeah. He explicitly says that. Yeah. And Pi is saying, well, yeah, we don't want it to look bad. Yeah, we <laughs> like should. We they should have <laughs> skill in their work. Yeah, and I think that is a really important point because you look at the arts and crafts movement, which I think you'd have to say ultimately failed, um, because what happened was the the roughness became an aesthetic that was then moved over to the factory production. Right. Right. The furniture was big, not and immediately. Right. right. It took a while. Yeah. But the furniture was was big and blocky with big through joinery and stuff like that, which a lot of people love, but they just moved that handmade furniture over to factory production. And so ultimately the factory replaced the workers. Right. And I do think, you know, Pi does, uh, in this book, he talks about, you know, some people would say that it's all about machinery for Morris and Pi said, no, no, no. Morris and, and Ruskin were not against machinery right. for machinery's sake. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I, a lot of the misunder, a lot of the, the the flaw in the arts and crafts philosophy isn't actually directly from Ruskin mm-hmm. or Morris. It actually is just, as, as Pi put it, the, the, their descendants, their followers, yeah. or whatever. That is sort of a misunderstanding. And so that is, I mean, that's is that not the, always the the thing with the popular uh, articulation of a particular ideology or you know vision that the popular level is always oversimplified not really nuanced and full of errors. Yes, right. right? But the, I think you summarized yeah, it. But the, the official proponents, those who formulated these theories, were much had much more subtlety in what they were presenting. So I think it's a similar sort of thing. But Pi still does take issue with Ruskin and Morris. Yeah. So in summarizing this chapter, he's basically talking about the idea of free workmanship, saying that um, the value of say, the, the um, distinction between free work and precise work. He says their value is relative to their time and circumstances. Regulation once had a meaning which it no longer has, while mm-hmm. free workmanship begins to mean what it can never have meant before. Yeah. I think that, that is- That last line is really so important. important. Yeah. Free workmanship begins to mean what it can never have meant before. Yeah. So handwork- to yeah. put it colloquially, you know, just yeah. to say working by hand means now or in 1968 and yeah. in 2023, it means now what it never meant before. Right. Yeah. A lot of the books coming out today that talk about like craft as if you're like eating some like gourmet cheese or something like it's a wine tasting, right? Where everything is like such this aesthetic experience. 
you would have been hard pressed a few hundred years ago to find somebody going that Joseph way. Joseph Moxon did not talk that no, way. No, Joseph Moxon did not talk that way. But we do today because of our time, mm -hmm. because the pendulum is swinging the other direction and we need something other than, you know, plexiglass and concrete and vinyl and tile. Um, we need that degree of uh, diversity in our built environment. Right, and that's the next chapter. That's where he's going with it. He's setting up the natural world to make a, an obvious observation. We all realize that we need a little bit of culture, a little bit of nature. We need a balance between these things. Uh, and so he's setting this up as obvious to to set up the next chapter, diversity, where he's really gonna dive into. This is actually a very long chapter, this mm -hmm. next one. Uh, I think it might be one of the longest ones where he's really um, detailing and laying out what he means by diversity of, of the surface. There are these uh, subtle undulations and why, and he gets you know really into this because that's it's kind of the heart of his book where he's really trying to say, this is where design can't enter. This mm -hmm. Design can't really prescribe this. Mm -hmm. This is really up to the workmen, and that's why we need high-level workmen, workmen uh, working by hand, working with workmanship of risk, to be able to give us this quality that uh, is the the meat for us, not the poison, but right. is the the antidote, as it were, yep. to the regularity that we're surrounded by. So, yeah, it's a good chapter. It's it's really moving into the heart of his argument, which I think is uh, quite profound. As you begin to unravel that, you realize, yeah, maybe I do need a little bit more, you know. Uh, undulation in my life. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> I think that every morning. <laughs> well, thank you for listening to the Mortis and Tenon podcast. If you haven't already, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, and as always, if you have any comments or questions, you can leave them below. Thanks for listening.